0: From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today we're talking about how evolving research impacts health recommendations. First, we'll be joined by a scientist who believes that what you've been told about alcohol consumption is probably wrong. And then, we'll talk to a researcher whose work shows that the health advice that comes from personal genetic testing often turns out to be wrong too. The psychiatrist and the oncologist, that's Undisciplined. This is Undisciplined, I'm Matthew LaPlante. Do you like to have a glass of wine with dinner? Just a glass, maybe two, no more. That's a healthy amount of alcohol, right? Well, it turns out that our assumptions about the health impacts of light drinking might be wrong. And that's not all. Have you ever had a personal genetics test? What did it tell you? Well, there's a good chance that whatever health advice you got based on that test was wrong. Because what researchers know about individual genes keeps changing. Each week on Undisciplined, we bring together two researchers from different fields and we try to make connections. Joining us today is Sarah Hart, whose recent study in the journal Alcoholism, Clinical and Experimental Research, added to the growing body of evidence that demonstrates that levels of drinking we currently call healthy might not be so healthy after all. She's joining us from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, where she studies substance dependence, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia. She's also an MD who works with patients with severe mental illness and has served in leadership positions with Academic Women's Network. Sarah, you're amazing. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And also with us today is Theo Ross, another MD, PhD, whose recent study in the Journal of the American Medical Association revealed that about a quarter of the gene variants that were initially categorized as having uncertain significance later were revealed to have a significant impact on personal health, and particularly on cancer. She's joining us from Dallas, where she's the director of the University of Texas Southwestern Cancer Genetics Program. Before arriving in the Lone Star State, she put in time at Harvard, Brigham and Women's, and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, where she also led a nonprofit that raised money for breast cancer research. Theo, wow, I'm so glad you were able to join us today.
2: Great to be here.
0: First up? The Psychiatrist. Excuse me,
2: can I get a pour down
0: here? There's a uh, special on the Syrah by the case. Hit me again?
1: Excuse me, could you just pour me a full glass? I'll pay for it.
0: That is a clip from the 2004 movie Sideways, which researchers have suggested may have increased sales of wine all around the world. And hey, nothing wrong with that, right? After all, we've long been told that drinking a glass or two of wine a night is healthy. And indeed, many doctors say that drinking one or two drinks four or more times per week can be perfectly healthy. But according to our first guest, that might not be the case. Her study analyzed data from more than 400,000 people between the ages of 18 and 85, and found that even that relatively small level of drinking increases the risk of premature death by 20%. Sarah Hartz, I went out the other night with a friend, thought about your research, and I opted for water. So, success?
1: Wow, that's impressive. (laughs) I I, uh, kind of switch back and forth between whether I decide to drink or not after the
0: study. We've been told for years that a drink or two each day is fine and it's healthy. What made you want to reevaluate that conventional wisdom?
1: I was just trying to get a better understanding of the relationship between alcohol use and death. And what I was trying to parse out in particular was that typically alcohol studies look at um, average number of drinks per week, but If we think of alcohol as a drug, I see a big difference between drinking six drinks at one time versus drinking, you know, a drink a day for six days. And those two would be categorized both as six drinks per week. And so I was trying to kind of get a better understanding of the relationship between frequency and death.
0: Now, the thing that confused me at first about this study is that there's been All this research showing that you know cardiovascular health can be impacted in a positive way by a little bit of wine, but I gather that you're not saying that that's not true. Just that it doesn't negate the way drinking can increase our risk of cancer and other problems, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Overall, we were looking at all cause mortality, which includes both cardiovascular death and cancer death, and it looks like any potential benefit that you get from cardiovascular health with drinking is negated by increased risk in cancer.
0: And one of the interesting findings was that the increased risk of death was pretty consistent. It was about 20% for young adults and about 20% for middle-aged adults and about 20% for older adults. That was really fascinating to me. Why do you think that is and what does that tell us?
1: It's hard to be super precise about our estimates because we're kind of breaking things up into very fine categories. And so, although I didn't see any differences between, you know, a change in the risk of death over time based on your age, that doesn't mean I don't, I don't know that I would read too much into that.
0: Gotcha. And it's also probably important to note that like if it is consistent, a 20% increase in death for 20-year-olds is really not as profound in terms of numbers as a 20% increased risk of death for like a 75-year-old because...
1: Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. Gotcha.
0: So your study came out right alongside another high-profile meta-study on drinking that concluded that there really is no level of drinking that doesn't have an adverse impact on health. Was that a coincidence or do you think there's a movement of researchers who are taking another look at drinking and mortality?
1: I think it was a coincidence. I think it's because now we have access to data and computational methods that we just haven't had in the past. And so people keep digging.
0: Has data really changed, or the access to data and the access to these new computational tools changed the way that people who do what you do, do what you do?
1: Absolutely. My father is an epidemiologist. And when he was Doing his work, you know, having a sample size of 200 was huge. And I'm working with, you know, more than 400,000 people. And in addition, just, you know, doing simple analyses could take a really long time, whereas now it's, you know, a blink of an eye.
0: And so do you think that opens up room to do sorts of like reevaluations of ideas that um, maybe have been around with us for a long time, but haven't been really meticulously studied to the way that we can do it now?
1: Yeah, I mean, but I think it's happening, you know, I mean, as we get more data and as the, you know, I mean, now what's happening is that there are these even bigger databases with medical records combined with genetic data often. And so they can, you can address questions that have been addressed before, but not with as powerful samples.
0: So, I went through all of the stages of grief when I read your study what <laughs> What's been the response to this on social media from your friends, from your family, from your colleagues?
1: I mean it's you know this you know I'm a recreational drinker. I wasn't excited about the finding, although there's a lot of things that we do in our lives that we actively choose to do that we know are not beneficial to our health. I mean, my main take-home message from this is that if we're choosing to drink, we just shouldn't think that it's a healthy thing to do. You know, it's like it's like having a piece of cake. We know that, you know, that's probably not the best idea, but we derive pleasure from it. And so, you know, enjoy the pleasure.
0: Okay, so really important question. Pinot or Merlot?
1: <laughs> Pinot for me.
0: That's Sarah Hartz, whose recent study in the journal Alcoholism, Clinical and Experimental Research, shows that even light drinkers have an increased risk of mortality. Sarah, I really want to introduce you to our next guest. Would you stick around until the end of the show to have a chat with her?
1: Yeah, I'd love it.
0: Next up, the oncologist.
1: Can you feel it? You're connected to the World Cup. It's in
0: your DNA. You may not have visited the country, But we're all connected to a World Cup nation. So this summer, root for your roots. Watch the FIFA World Cup on Fox. And let Fox Broadcast sponsor 23andMe help you find your team. That is a commercial that ran quite extensively in the United States during the 2018 Men's World Cup. And it was a sharp bit of marketing since the United States didn't qualify for the tournament and many Americans were looking for a team to cheer for genetic testing for the purposes of finding our ethnic roots is just part of the revolution afoot in the field of genomics. Genetic testing is also being used to help people understand how their genes impact their susceptibility to disease and their responsiveness to treatments and therapies, particularly when it comes to cancer. My next guest is a cancer researcher who has been at the forefront of the use of whole genome sequencing for diagnosis and discovery, and a recent paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association suggests that what our genes tell us today might not be the same as what they tell us tomorrow. That's because we're still learning what a lot of individual genes do. Theo Ross, let's unpack this a bit. Can you start by talking about the role that genetic testing now plays in cancer diagnosis and treatment?
2: Well, there are two types of genetic testing. There's the testing for inherited causes of cancer predisposition, and then there's the genetics of the tumor. And The study we're talking about today is just inherited predispositions to cancer. And that's changed a lot. You know, in the 1990s, we discovered BRCA1 and BRCA2, the two genes that predispose to breast and ovarian cancer and a few other cancers. At the time, we thought, oh, gosh, testing for that, I wouldn't know what to do with it anyway, so why would I get the test? Now, fast forward 20 years, we routinely test people who have family history of cancer for these two genes, or many other genes.
0: So, in your recent study, you've suggested that there's holes in our knowledge, really big ones. And about a quarter of the genes that were once called variants of uncertain significance have been reclassified as well as being significant. Is there well, per- or
2: not, or not? Correct you there. Yeah.
0: yeah. Is there a particular gene or set of genes that's an example of this?
2: Well, all of the genes, so, for example, the BRCA1 gene, the Angelina Jolie gene, has variants in it in many different people. African Americans and Hispanics in particular have been sequenced less, so we see more specific variations that we don't know what they mean. It's like reading Chinese and you don't know Chinese. It's just a language, and so we have to figure out whether that change in spelling is meaningful. Does it mean that the BRCA1 gene doesn't work anymore? Or is it just a normal alternative spelling? And 75% of the spellings, we still don't know what it means. And for 25%, we've been able to reclassify those to either meaning a normal spelling or broken. Most of them are normal.
0: This is really interesting to me because you've just presented a different way for me to conceptualize this. It's not that the 75% That haven't been reclassified or necessarily correct. It's just that we still don't know about those ones. Right. Wow. So it could be a lot more than 25% that eventually need to be reclassified or will be reclassified eventually.
2: They all need to be. We we need to understand completely the genome.
0: So to that end, for the study, you looked at 1.67 million initial test reports for hereditary cancer genes of those just about 60,000 amended reports were issued so Mm -hmm. walk me through this that's a really small percent of amended reports given the really large number of reclassifications that have occurred which means a lot of people are, are in the dark about this is that right yes so what does that mean for people's personal health if they're if they're in the dark about these reclassifications and and certainly for their doctors too
2: yeah, I think they need to know that the laboratories are continually reevaluating the data, and so they need to stay in touch with their physicians who get the reports. They need to know that genetic analysis is not one single event. You don't just spit into a tube or get your blood drawn and you're done and they'll give you the info. They're going to come back to you, and it's a process. I think that's really key. I think physicians are starting to get to know that now we need to get people in the community to know as well that this is not just a single event.
0: And you mentioned earlier some of the reclassifications are on genetic variants that confer a greater cancer risk and others that confer a lesser cancer risk. Either way, people people are going to want to know, right?
2: Yes. In fact, knowing that it's a lesser risk is often a big relief.
0: So reading this, I thought, Well, gosh, this makes so much sense. I mean, our knowledge of the human genome is really still just in its infancy, but I'd never thought about the way that emerging knowledge could really impact people's personal health decisions if they've already been tested and are already working with their doctors on a plan based on the knowledge that they had at the time that they were tested.
2: Yeah, yeah. In particular, for those who thought they had a broken gene, went ahead and had a prophylactic surgery, and then we come back to them and we say, Ah, we were wrong.
0: That's, that's tough. That's really tough. So what made you think to do this study? I mean, like, because at least for me, it, it's intuitive, but you've got to be a little counterintuitive to get to the intuitive part.
2: You know, over the years, we get reports from all the different laboratories that we use saying we've classified this or we've reclassified this, etc., and we had some pretty tough conversations with patients about their changes in their genome, that you know, our interpretations, how we changed it. But we didn't have a lot of data, you know, just our patients. We You know, we had a, over the 10-year period of the study, which was from uh, 2006 to 2016. We had about 9,000 patients tested from Myriad Genetics. That's not that many patients. So we talked to Marianne and said, how many patients do you have? And how many reclassifications did you have? And we started to look at the data together and it was fascinating. And so we we did it.
0: So who's responsible for updating people when variants are reclassified? Or or maybe I should ask, is anybody responsible for that?
2: Yes. You know, it's a tripartite responsibility. It's the laboratory is responsible to do it and inform the physician The physician is responsible to get the report and try to inform the patient. And the patient is responsible for checking in with their physician, especially if they change their phone number or their address or et cetera.
0: So you've already answered part of my next question. What's your advice to patients and their doctors? Stay tuned. That's Theo Ross, whose recent study in the Journal of the American Medical Association suggests that people who had their genes sequenced in the past might have gotten medical advice and care that would be different if they had their genes sequenced today. Theo, I can't wait to introduce you to my first guest, and I don't have to wait because I've got you both right here together. So, Theo, this is psychiatrist Sarah Hart, and Sarah, this is oncologist Theo Ross.
2: Great to meet you. Great to meet you.
0: Sarah, can I start with you? You've researched the impact of personal genomic testing for health behaviors, and while I was reading some of your past work, I came across a personal essay you wrote for a bioethics journal called My Experience with Direct-to-Consumer Genetic Testing. I'm guessing my conversation with Theo sparked a lot of ideas and questions.
1: (laughs) Yes, so um, I was interested in exploring the direct-to-consumer genetic testing world, and so I went out and And I got tested by as many companies as I could find. And then I found that that I had an increased risk for breast cancer. But what was interesting was that I didn't recognize this increased risk with some initial testing. So like the way 23andMe reported it to me, like I, I didn't think it was a big deal. And then I got a different kind of report from Color Genomics, and it totally freaked me out. And then I realized that I had, in fact, already had that information in the past. So...
2: Do you mind sharing what the information is? It was a a CHECK2
1: mutation, I think. Is that right? Uh So the the 23andMe report, I mean, I guess I was focusing, for the 23andMe report, I was focusing more on, I was concerned that I might have BRCA1 or 2. And then, so the 23andMe report just said you have an increased risk of breast cancer. But I wasn't that impressed by the numbers. But then when when I got to color genomics, they wouldn't release my results to me until I talked to a genetic counselor, so it was yeah. fairly dramatic and then it took me several weeks to realize that this was information that I already had
2: i see I don't think twenty three and me could test for a check to mutation so then it must have been you know then i'm not <laughs> I'm not hundred
1: percent sure what mutation is. I don't remember,
2: yeah, yeah. So, have you followed up on that? Yeah, so now I have to
1: get annual MRIs and mammograms, Mm -hmm. whereas my plan before was not to get a mammogram until I was 50. The other thing that happened that was crazy was that the first time I got an MRI, I required a biopsy afterwards and so they tried to do an ultrasound biopsy and they didn't biopsy it appropriately and so then they had to do an MRI guided biopsy and you know it was, it was benign and which is exactly what they say one of the risks can be from genetic testing right. that you do unnecessary tests and you, you know have unnecessary invasive procedures which is exactly what happened, it's an interesting journey.
0: Theo, have you, also had, uh, have you also done your sequences, and, and how does your research impact the way that you read your re- reports?
2: Yes, I actually wrote, wrote a book about it, um, but yes, I have a BRCA1 mutation, so we're all mutants. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what about your recent research, when you realized that so many of these genes were being reclassified over time, did that impact the way that you thought about your personal health care decisions?
2: Um, n- not really. I mean, my. you know, there are some mutations that are really broken. We know that. They're not going to change. So not not personally for me. But for a lot of patients, we think about that now. So we're much more careful to say, stay tuned. Do you think that there are variants that are said to
1: be pathogenic now that are actually, that might actually turn up to be not pathogenic? Or? Yes yeah yeah so you feel like even even variants that are called- not variants of unknown significance but variants that are called pathogenic are actually yes. yeah wow
2: it's it's rare but it has yeah right right and uh, yeah. yeah that's crazy yeah yeah I mean the only thing we can be certain of right is, is things, right yeah, things, I mean this is medicine, medicine. you can't yeah.
1: ever i mean there's there's nothing we can guarantee i mean we can only give the best information we have now. Um, right, right. But, but interpreting genetic variants is particularly unusual because it's evolving so quickly. And it's, I mean, all the other me- medical tests we do, we just analyze it once and then it's done. Like, we're done with that test. And we move on. Right. right,
0: right, So you're both MDs. Would what you found in your research impact the advice you'd give patients? Sarah? For instance, when it comes to alcohol.
1: I don't think that this means that alcohol is horrible. I mean, this isn't, alcohol isn't like smoking. I mean, this is not really? putting alcohol into that category.
2: Really? So in in, in uh, the cancer world, we think it's like smoking. Really? Mm-hmm. So you would think that light alcohol
1: use and light smoking are
2: mm-hmm. equivalent? Why? Oh, that's interesting.
0: Why is that?
2: I think, uh, well, what you're, you're asking—the mechanism, like how does that work? Yeah. Nobody knows, but if you take alcohol and you convert it, you know, in the liver to acetaldehyde or whatever it is, it it has caused DNA damage. Supposedly, it induces estrogen, so that could be why it has a risk in um, breast cancer more than many others. But it, it, it affects a lot of cancers.
1: I mean, based on that assumption, I was expecting it to see higher mortality in women than in men, which I didn't see in this analysis for cancer-related deaths. But Mm -hmm. it could be that that it's a mortality issue, that, you know, I mean, the incidence of breast cancer could
2: be higher. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: So, Sarah, you set out to evaluate a pretty commonly held assumption about drinking. And, Theo, you explored the impact of a pretty common practice for informing patients about what their genes say about their cancer risk. You're both MD, PhDs, and I'm wondering whether that impacts the way you look at the world and the questions that you ask about it.
2: I hope so. I hope that you, <laughs> our training causes us to be a little bit more skeptical and uh, wanting to get the data and test it and retest it and relook at it and revise it. I mean, that's what research is. So, one would hope. Yeah,
1: I agree. I also think that it makes me it makes me think that medicine is much less definitive than people who aren't researchers think may think it is. Like the way I was with the with the mammogram, I I wasn't very impressed with the data that mammograms are helpful, and they just seemed like they were a pain. And so my plan was to not get one, yep. um, because of the data. And so, like, I'm pretty skeptical in general of medicine, I
0: think. So what about from the other directions? When you're working with patients, when you see patients and you see the impact of all the chaos in our lives on the outcomes of individual patients, does that inform better for you the uncertainty of the process of building research conclusions too?
1: Well you know I mean, so I'm a psychiatrist, and that's a completely different field than oncology i mean i i I tell my patients that I would be surprised if, in ten years we even have the same diagnoses once we know more about the biology behind these. Um, and so I feel like in psychiatry we're kind of in the dark ages in in terms of our biological understanding versus i mean oncology is definitely different. I don't know what you would say about that, Pia.
2: I don't know. Although, yeah, I, I agree. It's like psychiatry is um, an interesting area. I know a yeah, lot of I mean, colleagues who need you. Psychiatry, <laughs> I, I I went into psychiatry because we know so little that the yeah. steps we can, we can
1: make are huge. Um, and so that was what was exciting to me about it.
2: Um. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I think oncology is like that, too.
0: Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. Sarah Hart, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And Theo Ross, thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined, Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LePlant. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.